Nothing is more powerful than the connection between storyteller and audience. Over 100 million Americans listen to podcasts monthly, forming lasting connections with their favorite creators. Ad Results Media helps breakthrough brands join the conversation with advertising that feels authentic and organic. With over 20 years of expertise in the audio influencer space, Ad Results Media amplifies brands across thousands of shows, publishers, and emerging platforms. Be part of the story. Learn more at adresultsmedia.com story. That's adresultsmedia.com story. On three, two, one. We are speaking with the one and only legendary Canadian, Andy Curran. You have to throw in legendary. It's important. <laughs> Salut, monsieur. Bonjour. Good, good. So I was just on the phone with a, a gentleman called Monsieur Pierre Paradis, and he was like, well, you've got to tell Andy hello for me. Uh, and then he started telling me about, you know, uh, Coney Hatch opened up for Iron Maiden in 1983. I think that's the first time I met him. Is, is, the, is that recollection from Pierre correct? Was that where you first met? Well, it, it absolutely is. And Pierre is, uh, is one of my favorite Quebecers, as, as you are. And uh, I've known him for quite some time, I think. I'm trying to think of when I first met uh, Pierre Paradis, uh, a.k.a. Pete Paradise. I think he was the manager of Voivod, if I'm not mistaken. Could be. Could be. Yeah. Now, now, he's, now he's doing some stuff with uh, Harmonium. But uh, let, let's get us back to what fans might, might find interesting. Uh, and before we get to your releases of uh, Caramel and Leisure World and all that, uh, mm-hmm. what was that 1983 tour like for Iron Maiden? And... and was that one of those where Donald K. Donald, which is a, a Canadian promoter, comes to you and says, oof, you've got the goods? Or did you have to audition? Did you have to you know, you'd have to twist arms? Talk, just talk to me about, that, about the yeah, Iron yeah. Maiden experience. Well, no, that's a great question, Mitch. And um, Donald K. Donald was a big supporter of Coney Hatch. For, for anybody who knows our band, they know that we might have played more in Quebec than we did in Ontario. We used to play the, the Mustache Club and Cirque yep. Electrique and the Quebec City and uh, the Maples and everything. So we had a lot, of, a lot of great times in Montreal. But actually, the Iron Maiden um, tour, from what we were told at the time when we got it and then was confirmed by Steve Harris, the bassist, was um, they were aware of Coney Hatch because of all of our MTV play that we had with Devil's Deck. And um, we had previously toured with, uh, with Judas Priest on the Screaming for Vengeance tour. And um, from what I understand, uh, specifically, Steve was a fan of the band. We were, we were literally invited out on that tour, um, the Peace of Mind tour. And we shared the stage with Maiden and Fastway. So that was pretty cool to... Um, you know, struck up a friendship with Dave King from Fastway, but uh, what, the the maiden the maiden guys they just rolled out the red carpet for us. They were so kind, and I brought my tennis racket on the road to eliminate the boredom, Mitch. You know, between yeah. gigs, and um, that's where we really stuck up a fr- uh, struck up a friendship with Steve Harris and I. And he came barging in the dressing room one day, and he said, "Which one of you guys has your tennis racket here?" And I, that, that's me. So next thing you know, we're, we're playing tennis as much as we could on days off or even day of the show. Wow. And um, that really cemented the friendship. And, and as you know, to this day, I think the last time you and I saw each other was at an Iron Maiden show um, yeah. in Montreal. Yeah. So, and that led to Steve inviting Coney Hatch out to open up for, for British Lion the last time we were through Montreal and Quebec. So that's right. Um, but my God, what, if you were to, if you were to, be able to go back in time and pick 
a, a record to tour off of with Maiden that arguably might have been, you know, at them at the, at the height of their career, even though they're probably bigger today. But that Peace of Mind tour was incredible. I think we were out for approximately two and a half to three months with them. Wow. And isn't it amazing <laughs> that these bands that have these 40, 50, 60 year careers, when you hear the stories, it's always about how nice they were, how much they gave us stage, how much. And then you hear some other bands that sort of came and went and you always hear these stories about they cut the stage, they cut the <laughs> Being nice goes a long way, I think, to keeping you in the game. It, it does. And, and we um, <clears throat> excuse me, we had um, for the most part, I think we've been treated fairly well by everybody. But um, I'm, I'm a big Crocus fan. I, I, when that when that band first hit. I remember, you know, like I was listening to a lot of UFO and Saxon, <clears throat> Judas Priest, and, and excuse me. Anyway, we yeah. um, we ended up getting the opening slot with Crocus and <clears throat> those guys. Barely you're having said the same. Of, you're having the same morning cough as me, by yeah, the way. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Breakfast they, is still with us. They barely said hello to us, um, and it was kind of disappointing when you're a fan of the band, right? Yeah, it is. You know, uh, Bruce Kulik of Kiss once, I, I kept saying, I want to meet Ace Frail. I want to meet Ace Frail. I want to meet. And he goes, Mitch, just remember this. Uh, you, you don't want to meet your heroes because they'll never live up to what you have in your head. And yeah. it's just like, and, and by the way, I, I've met Ace and he, he was perfectly nice, but I, I get it because you, you, you have this image and then it's not the image and you go, damn it. <laughs> Yeah, I can tell you firsthand that um, I've got a couple of friends that worked with uh, Kiss and they were touring with Aerosmith and they invited me out to the show. And, and one of the guys said, would you would you like to meet the band? Would you? And I and I said, well, actually, I'd really like to meet Steve Tyler. And he was like, mm, I know you love Steve Tyler. You might not want to meet him. And, and I could see him in the in the background, Mitch. And I was like, OK, do I exactly what you said? Do I ruin my you know, my perception. perception of one of my heroes here. So I opted not to meet Steven Tyler that day and just keep him on the pinnacle that I have him on. But uh, it does go a long way. It, 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 there was a very much a community vibe on that Peace of Mind tour. A lot of hanging out with both bands backstage afterwards. And, um, you know, we kind of we got snubbed by the, the Crocus guys. So that was, that was like, okay, well, I guess we're not hanging out with them tonight. <laughs> okay. Uh, that that'll be the title of your next album snubbed by crocus coney yeah, Hatch, snubbed is, by that, crocus that is a good title for for a live record that we're working on <laughs> yeah so you well the the live at the elma combo um you can get uh, signed copies right now just uh, quickly talk to me about about that one and you know i, I see the screaming title their first live album what, what took so long to get there Oh, man, that's a great question. I don't know, you know, in the era that I certainly grew up with, I can remember some of the the, the biggest artists, you know, um, really popping off the live record because it was a great um, it was it was a great snapshot of their sound. Obviously, Peter Frampton comes Frampton comes alive. I wore that one out. Frank Marino and Mahogany Rush, another great live album. Um, I think Kiss Alive. I wasn't a huge Kiss fan, but that one certainly, you know, um, pop them into the stratosphere, uh, the ACDC, if you want blood live record. So in the spirit of that, um, that record, excuse me for one sec. In the spirit of that, we, we ended up thinking that it would be a good time finally to try to do a live Coney Hatch record, because a lot of people have said that that's their favorite, I guess the, the their favorite representation of the band. It, there's no, 
it's it's what you see is what you get. Two two guitars, bass, drums, vo vocals. It's kick ass four on the floor. So I don't know what took us so long, but we had the opportunity. We were invited by the CEO and the owner of the Elma Combo to come and play. He said, I know you guys played the Elma Combo in 1983. What do you think about coming back? So it was on his invitation, Mitch, that the whole thing started started to just steamroll. Yeah. And and here it is. So now fans can get it. It's signed. Um, I'm going to just move to these other projects because you, you've got so many. So yesterday, and I'll get to uh, Caramel and Leisure World, but yesterday I was talking to Mike Levine of Triumph and they had this new 40th anniversary of Allied Forces. And during the conversation, Mike goes, oh, yeah, it's Andy Curran who put all that together. Um, so explain that work. And, and, and how did you, you come about all this Triumph stuff and, and assembling that? Yeah. Um, no, Mike's, Mike and the boys in Triumph had been friends of mine for a very long time. And it actually dates back to, I think, maybe 84 or 85 when Coney Hatch did uh, a handful of Western Canadian dates opening up for Triumph. So there was always a friendship there. Um, I've recorded recorded quite a few times at Metalworks and have a, have a good friendship with, um, with Gil Moore. So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, those guys were aware that I had done a lot of work with Anthem Records and, and had curated the box sets of um, the anniversary box sets for 2112 and um, a farewell to Kings and Hemispheres. And, and they called me out of the blue and said, hey, you know, we're planning on doing this box set. Do you think you'd be able to come over and work with us and do something similar that you did with Rush? We love the work that you did with Rush. They were aware of the Max Webster box set that I curated. So uh, you know, Mitch, you know this, that I, that there's sort of a whole other side to what I do. I'm, I'm yes, first and foremost, a musician, but I've worked and uh, managed to transition into the business side. So um, I love putting together those box sets, man. It's like being part of the band. You go in, you get to um, uncover stuff out of the archives and everything. So that's what I did. I helped them curate the 40th anniversary of, of Allied Forces, which is coming out for Record Store Day. And um, just having the, the, the band uh, allow me to, to sneak peek and go rummaging through their, the, the mezzanine at Metalworks and find all this great stuff for it, that was a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed doing that. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of like a gun for hire when it comes to that. Yeah, that's not a bad. That's not a bad side gig to uh, to rummage through the uh, vaults of Rush and Max Webster and <laughs> and Triumph and. But okay, so let's let's get to your vaults because you you went rummaging yeah. through your vaults during the pandemic, and I'm going to start with Leisure World from 2002. Yeah, you have said publicly that it is your favorite collection of songs. So so first of all, let's qualify that. What does that mean? Because Obviously, you're proud of the Coney Hatch stuff. Obviously, you're proud of Caramel. Obviously, you're proud of the other stuff. But what does that mean that these are the songs that sort of resonate the most with you? Yeah, um, again, an awesome question, buddy. And um, thank you for shouting it out. During the, the, uh, um, the course of pandemic, uh, I think like a lot of people, I started purging and looking to clean up my studio first and foremost. And, and my wife is one of my best pals. And she was like, dude, your, your studio's a gong show. And what, what are all these boxes filled with cassettes? And what are those tiny little tapes? Oh, those are DAT tapes, digital audio tapes. Well, what are you doing with them, right? So um, 
the, the Leisure World record, which is probably the last sort of um, major label release that I did was out on uh, early 2000s. And I had a deal with a company called Artist Direct. And um, Ted Fields uh, was one of the founders of Interscope and, and signed the band. We had a, quite a quite a lot of action going on with a song called I'm Dead. It was top 10 in Boston and Milwaukee and a few other markets. And anyway, we got scooped up and signed very quickly. Similar to the Caramel record, the record company went bankrupt or just folded like, you know, two months after. So the honeymoon was over before it even, before we even did very much. There was a smattering of tour dates, you know, in, in the U.S. and stuff like that. But I realized that those records had never been available on Amazon or Spotify or Apple or, or any of those platforms. And my brothers and a few of my friends were like, dude, why can't we get Leisure World on, on Spotify? And I said, because I haven't done a deal for it. So a very good friend of mine in Nashville, Randall Foster, he has a company called Symphonic Distribution. I called him up and I said, just for bragging rights and for closure, can you help me with this? I've cleaned up my studio. I've found a bunch of old master tapes that have never been up digitally. So he said, absolutely, I'll help you with that. So that's what we did. We, we um, worked very closely and I got Harry Hess from Harem Scarum to remaster some stuff for me. Um, and we just, we just bundled them all up together and, and finally got them out. So it was, it was like a nice moment for me to go, there you go to my brothers and friends, it's up, right? And to answer your last question, um, as a musician, I look back over the, the body of work that I was involved in and just the sound and the production and the songwriting and the team that we put together, Randy Cook on drums and Simon Brierley on guitar. Um, and, and just thinking back about the making of that record, I, I'm just so proud of it, Mitch. And, and if you were to say to me, what, what you know, song or piece of music really embodies the where your headspace is musically and still is today, it would be the Leisure World record. A lot of disappointment that I never really got to go out and support it and tour it, but um, I don't know, it's just a combination of everything. I especially love the production on it. I co-produced it with Vic Florencia, who is a, a Juno award-winning mixer and engineer and, and co-producer. And, um, it's just it's it's a very it's a very alternative, angry, rocking sounding record. It's it started to get me into loops and vibes and just being atmospheric and not you know having to pedal to the metal every song, but it just creates some vibes. And I, I really enjoyed making that record, which is probably why I'm, I'm so proud of it. I'm so so proud of it. Uh, just before I get over to uh, to Cara Caramel, you uh, you mentioned that you've been uh, training real hard in the hopes of the uh, Blackhawks, the uh, Chicago Blackhawks calling you up to the <laughs> NHL someday. How, how is your NHL career coming along? Not good right now because of the COVID <laughs> lockdown of the rinks. Um, but oh. prior, prior to our premier Doug Ford locking things down, Mitch, I, had, I was still skating um, two to three times a week, hoping that one of the scouts from the Blackhawks might just hear about my prowess on the ice with a high rising <laughs> slap shot. But um, like a lot of Canadian kids, um, my first love and desire was to be in the National Hockey League. And once I got a little bit older and everybody started getting bigger and I started getting skinnier and getting crunched uh, on the ice all the time, I, I played right up until uh, the end of high school hockey. And then I just realized like, Kern, you don't have the goods to go to the show. So uh, I focused on music after that. 
I was going to say here, I, I grew up uh, next to, um, I grew up living next to Ken Dryden of the Montreal yeah. Canadiens. And somewhere in my desk, I have an autograph, but I can't, find, I was going to show it to you, but I grew up uh, living next to it. So I understand the uh, Canadian dream. And, and the good thing about living next to Ken Dryden or near Ken Dryden, he was the street over actually, uh, is that Halloween, uh, instead of giving out candy, he'd give out Habs pucks, Montreal Canadiens oh, pucks. Are you and, serious? That's yeah. Awesome. And you have to remember in 76, 77, 78, there wasn't really that kind of merchandising where you could run down to the whatever and buy a Habs puck. You basically had to go to the forum and catch one. <laughs> so for him to hand out one with a logo was like, oh, wow. That's so cool. That's so cool. And, you know, just to quickly touch on Ken Dryden, because um, as, a, as a Blackhawk fan growing yeah. up, I can, rem I can remember in 1972 where the Hawks had a really good handle on winning the Stanley Cup and Ken Dryden stood on his Robbed head. And, you. That's right. and, yeah, and Jacques Lemaire and a few other guys, uh, Henri uh, Richard, they were just like a thorn in my side for many years. But I ended up, speaking of box sets, I ended up doing a Stompin' Tom Connors um, wow. re reissue with, uh, with some of his catalog stuff when I was over at Anthem. And when I was talking to Stompin' Tom's son, uh, Stompin' Tom Jr., he said, I said, who can we get to write the liner notes about your dad? And he said, you know, Ken Dryden would be a good choice. He's a big hockey fan. So I ended up calling Ken and asking him if he, uh, if he would mind contributing to that package. So anybody that's interested in hockey and Stomp and Tom, if you read the liner notes, they were eloquently composed by Mr. Ken Dryden, who, who is quite, oh, wow. quite the gifted writer. And I'll finish on one last thing with Ken Dryden before we move on. Um, Early 90s, I was working on a TV show for PBS called uh, The World in Review. And there was also The Editors. There was two shows that was filming at the same time. And we always had political guests. We had Robert Barassa. We had uh, David. What was it? David Cameron, the Ontario minister, prime minister back then? David? Uh, might anyway. have been, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Ken Dryden was one of the guests. And he moved away from where I lived when I was like 10 or 11, you know, but there was the community pool and everybody. Anyway, uh, so I'm in my mid twenties and Ken Dryden walks in and I walk right up to him just to, to say hello. Cause I was there to greet guests. And so, and he goes, Hey, Mitch LaFon from so-and-so from the, you know, from our town. And I was like, what you remember? He goes, yeah, yeah I always saw you at the pool. And I was like, you're, that's so cool. And I mean, Ken Dryden remembers me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not so much that he remembers me. It's that I was 11 years old and here I was like 24, 25, you know, 15 years. And, and he remembers. And I was like, wow, what a yeah. memory. I mean, what a guy. I mean, just what a guy. And yeah, uh, yeah anyway, he, I, he was. I love, I love the photos of him leaning on his goalie stick, you know, when the play was down at the other end, as much as as much as the Habs um, crushed my dreams back then and stole the Stanley Cup away from us. I still think what a, one of the best all-time goalies ever. Yep. And, and, you know, when you talk about iconic images, we, you know, we look at the, you know, the face paint for Gene Simmons. But when you talk about sports, that, that, that's an iconic image with that mask. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Caramel, epic three-year recording journey, as it says here, post your Juno award. Uh, was it just, you know, circumstance that made it last so long was it just not it wasn't fully cooked early on and you had to just keep trying what was the story with caramel why did it take so long by the way do we say caramel or carmel depending no, if we're american right. or canadian right exactly right I, I think for us it's caramel and i used to eat them by the <laughs> dozens right speaking of halloween but um 
A uh, great question again, and I'll tell you why it took so long. So post Juno Award, um, the, the quick story is that I was signed to Alert Records and after winning, after getting nominated for two Junos and winning one of them, the very next conversation I had with them was that they weren't going to do another record with me. I, I don't know what was going on with the label. So anybody listening, um, and Mitch, you know this, the trials and tribulations of a musician, there's peaks and valleys. One day you're riding high, the next day you, you win a Juno Award and you don't have a record deal. So um, at the yep. time I was at the time I was signed to a publishing deal with Sony Music Canada and they had just built a beautiful facility in Toronto that included a recording studio so they asked me um, I had a meeting with them and they said hey what do you want to do now um, we can send you around and you can do some co-writing with people in New York and LA because I had co-written Dig in a Hole with Gordy Johnson I had co-written a bunch of stuff with Kim Mitchell and they said so if you want to carve out a career as a songwriter you can do that and I said no I'd prefer to make a record and they said well our studio is really busy you know we've got our lady peace in there and we've got junk house and we've got daddies of Eden and they listed off pretty much the entire Canadian roster of the uh, Sony Music domestic signing and and so yours truly was allowed to slot himself in on the downtime courtesy of my publishing deal um, it wasn't a freebie because any of the money that that I earned with my co-writes would go against the recording time. So that pretty much answers your question. Can you imagine trying to slot in the recording of your own record in and around about 10 other artists? God. And it got to the point, Mitch, where literally two and a half, three years later, we actually threw a party, my wife and I, that said we finally finished the freaking record. And um the interesting part about that was being in Sony at the building, I had assumed that they would sign me uh, as a Sony Music Canada act. Right. And, and they didn't. So Fooled um, you, right? <laughs> they fooled me. I was like, no. And, and then the publishing company went, now what do you want to do? And I said, well, I have some very good friends in Buffalo, New York. Uh, they have a, a, a company called Could Be Wild. They're a promotion team. They really like the record. Uh, Doug Dombrowski and Bruce Moser, they're iconic um, record business guys that you probably heard of. Anyway, they yep. took my they took my um, caramel record. We did an independent pressing of it. We sent it out to some radio stations, and um, lo and behold, lightning struck, and we started to get a ton of airplay and all over the states um, in California, in wow. Boston again, and we ended up getting a bidding war on that record and. Um, right under the underneath the noses of Sony Music Canada, Geffen came in. They flew to see the band at uh, at the Horseshoe and basically walked into the dressing room after the show and said, "Welcome to the Geffen family." And the deal was on my desk two days later. See? And that was that was another lightning strike moment. And um, sadly, um, two or three months later, Geffen was absorbed by Universal. All the people were, you know, they dropped 90% of their bands. Uh, it was around the same time as Guns N' Roses and Rob Zombie was another big act on the label at that time. So the the guy that signed us was a really cool guy. And he said to me, Andy, the, the ride's over. I'm getting fired next week, but I'm going to give you back your master tapes. And um, so they've sat in my studio since 1999. And I finally thought, Kern, get off your ass and put these <laughs> things up so people can hear them, right? But it, but you mentioned it. Like some of the stuff is um, you can get the vinyl. You can order it through ConeyHatch.com. There's a store section there. 
And on my website, andykernmusic.com, you can find the Caramel and the Leisure World records there and links to all of all of the digital places to hear it. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll finish on this one. You're also putting out the uh, self-titled uh, solo album from 91. Uh, by, by the way, talk, talk to me just real quick. With all these different projects, were all of them intended to be bands that just, and, and they, just didn't, they just didn't develop? Or were they always intended to be individual projects, one-offs? And here's Andy Solo, here's Caramel, here's Leisure World. What was sort of yeah. the, the grand scheme of thing with each? <clears throat> Um, I think for me, I've always felt more comfortable in bands as opposed to, hey, look at me. This is my solo project, you know. So taking taking a, a page out of the Coney Hatch book, I um, I'm that I'm that what I like to call my no tattoos record, you know, with license to love and the, and my turned into the solo record. That was the label saying, no, we're not interested in a band. We're we're interested in you, which was kind of a nice shot in the arm, but um, at the same time, awkwardly calling it after after my name and then putting my mug on the front there I, ne- I never did that again after that Mitch because I was just like ah. I even later there was a, another record called Andy Kern and Soho 69 and then I, I just cut off the Andy Kern and put Soho 69 on it but it was a record company thing um who said we're, we're gonna this is gonna be your solo album Wow. Um, so I'm talking to Tom Barry right now. And last year was the 25th anniversary of it. And we kind of missed it during COVID. Yep. So I, I told Tom that I had been purging and cleaning up my studio. And I found some great outtakes and some unreleased songs and some live versions of it. And what did he think about putting to putting out a little, you know, best of sort of that no tattoos thing? And he said, yeah, let's go for it. So that's what I'm working on right now. And hopefully... Wow. Hopefully in the summer, the same way that Caramel and Leisure World were up, we're going to do that with the, with the, uh, with the No Tattoos record. You see? So all kinds of good things are happening. And just uh, real quick, on, on the self-titled solo album, after having been in a band and after having done a tour with Iron Maiden, after having all this stuff going on, was it sort of strange or, or was the pressure too much or, or you know, it's like, it's Andy now, you know, if Coney fails, it, well, we all fail. It's the three of us. Or if we <laughs> succeed, it's the, you know, it's the three, four of us that succeed. But, the, but, but is it, is it different making a solo record where you go, oof, it's all me sink or swim. Yeah. It's interesting that you that you're saying that I, I think I was so entrenched in just making the record that I never really realized that, that the focus would be okay. Kern, you're on the hot seat now. Um, I quickly formed a band with with um, Glenn Milchum on drums, who uh, plays in Blue Rodeo now, one of my favorite rock drummers, um, a collection of guitar players in Toronto that were buddies and just got busy like writing and recording, never really sort of focusing on the, okay, dude, now, now if anybody Fs up, it's all going to be on you. But certainly once the record was out, realizing that the the press and people like yourself didn't want to talk to anybody in the band just me i was like oh my god be careful what you bite off for here right you know and and it was a very good ride you know we we had such a great time did a lot of touring with kim mitchell um toured with rick emmett talking about you know uh, the days of triumph we did, yep. did a bunch of shows with them toured with uh haywire uh did some dates with last time haywire so, dance yeah. desire Yes, dude. uh, I bought that album. Yeah, (laughs) really, really great guitar player in that band. But um, 
I don't know. I didn't, I didn't feel the pressure, Mitch, just because I was in it. I was right. up to my eyeballs in everything, um, writing, producing, mixing. What's the artwork going to be? Who's the band going to be? <laughs> right. God, boy, there's so, so many great band, Canadian bands. Uh, you, you got me all excited about Haywire. I bought yeah. that album. I thought that was a great album. And, and, and I saw them open for Honeymoon Suite at the uh, Lone Star Cafe in Ottawa. Can't, can't Dude, beat that. I've, can't yeah, beat that combination. I think, <laughs> no, and I, th- I think the guitar player and the, and the lead vocalist were, in my mind, you know, they 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 were awesome. Both those guys. That was the band. That guitar player was very much like a Canadian Eddie Van Halen. I wish I could remember his name. He's a sweetheart. Um, but we had a lot of fun touring with those guys. I can't remember his name at all. I, I can picture the video and everything. Uh, mm-hmm. East Coast guys, right? I think they were. From I believe so. Halifax, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, there we go. The uh, the history of Canadian music in, in half an hour. Uh, head over to andycurrentmusic.com. Andy, andycurrentmusic.com. And on that, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Toujours un plaisir. Always a pleasure. My pleasure too, buddy. And, uh, and oh, by the way, I just noticed you're wearing a, a Blackhawks hat. That's, I why I, that's why I thought you were <laughs> shouting out the Blackhawks. You're like, okay, Curran, you're wearing a Blackhawks hat again. But uh, Mitch, it's it's always it's a funny. blast. It's always a blast uh, talking to you, brother. And and hopefully I'll see you soon. I'd love to get out to Quebec um, yeah. one of these days. But uh, you take care of yourself. And thanks for letting me hog up the airwaves again with you. Toujours, absolutely. All right.